Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of Broad Street LinkedIn. I am Reed, back on with Griff, and today we have a very, very special guest joining us. He began covering the birds full-time in 2011 for Sports Illustrated, but has been writing about Philly sports since 96. One of the best in the game. If you're listening to this pod, I'm sure he needs no introduction. Ed Kratz, thank you very much for joining us on the pod today. My pleasure, guys. So I wanted to start with a painful question um, dating back to February. So in retrospect, now nine months after uh, the birds lost to the chiefs, uh, what do you think was the biggest factor in that loss? The biggest factor. I think there were many factors. Um, gosh, I, I would say one of the turning points of the game was the long punt return that they gave up late uh, in the game. I mean, it was just a, a terrible kick by Aaron Sippus. He kicked it to the wrong side of the field, allowed Kadarius Tony to kind of cut back across the field and take it down to the four-yard line. Uh, and, and the Chiefs scored another touchdown. I think it came on the heels of a, a touchdown they had scored like two minutes earlier. So um, that, to me, was a huge turning point in the game was, was that punt return. If, if you make a stop there, you hold them to a field goal, um, Maybe the Eagles win. I mean, it comes down to that field goal at the end. I mean, people might say it was James Bradbury's holding call that was kind of the difference. And, you know, I mean, Bradbury talked right after the game. And to his credit, he stood at his locker post-Super Bowl and said, yeah, I held him. I mean, he owned up to it. He's, he was an accountable player. Um, so that was kind of surprising. He didn't make any excuses. So I'm not going to say Bradbury's hold was the was the kind of the biggest thing. I think it was maybe that punt return. But there's so many things, Reed, you can point to in that game that just didn't go the Eagles' way. Jalen Hurts' fumble um, that was scooped up and returned for a touchdown. I mean, that, that's a big point in that game. So um, there were many reasons, and you know, but the biggest to me was probably that punt return and maybe the most under the radar of, of the reasons too. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, that's one point that you, you won't find uh, you won't find online with most with most writers. So um, I, I honestly didn't think about that uh, as a potential answer from you. So uh, that's great stuff. So following that, what do you think is the biggest determinant 
um, of whether the birds can finish the job this year in Super Bowl 53 and bring that home. Health. I would say health is going to be the biggest determinant. They, uh, they've been banged up this year. Uh, you know, they were banged up a little last year, but they were relatively healthy. They did. They had all hands on deck for the playoffs, more or less. I know Lane Johnson had the, you know, the torn adductor muscle that he was playing through, and great job by him to do it. I know Jalen hurts his shoulder, uh, wasn't one hundred percent, but this year they've really been hammered with injuries at one position in particular, and that's the slot cornerback position. You know, where they had Zach McPherson, the backup, goes down in August with uh, an Achilles. Then Devontae Maddox, your starter, goes down with the torn peck. And then you run Mario Goodrich out there. He's not the answer. You try Sidney Brown, a rookie, not quite ready yet. Bradley Roby's brought in, hurts his shoulder, has missed the last three games. You hope that maybe he comes back and can stabilize things. Dallas Goddard's going to miss some time with a broken forearm. The Kobe Dean, I'm not sure he's coming back with the Liz Frank sprain. So, to me, it's all about how healthy you are uh, heading into December and, and into the crucible of the schedule. And um, the Eagles have been banged up. You hope maybe they've had their share now and the law of averages will uh, say, okay, they're going to be healthy now going into December and January. But you just don't know. But uh, health to me is a really big uh, factor in whether or not the Eagles can get back to the Super Bowl. Yeah, it feels a bit more like 2017 at the moment. Um, not as serious, but man, the injuries are piling up. Yeah, it's a good. Uh, that's a good analogy, though. I mean, because you're right. Jason Peters was hurt. You know, they had some injuries. Nigel Bradham was banged up. But yeah, that's a good good comparison. So regarding that slot corner position, um, you know, we're we're the only team in the NFL really that's playing games without a slot corner. That is a natural in that position. Um, and like you said, we've had. Eight guys, I believe, uh, rotate through that position. Even guys like Sidney Brown, who's in his fifth NFL game and a safety. The fact that we're trying him at slot corner is speaking volumes to the issue. And yes, you know, we're obviously we're hoping Roby comes back against the Chiefs off the bye and he can stay healthy. But uh, I guess my question is, if not, what are our options? Have you heard anything about how we exploring the waiver or free agency, uh, something like that, or are all our are all our chips in for Roby just staying healthy? Yeah, I mean, you could scour other teams' practice squads to see maybe if there's some help out there that you can bring in. The downside to that is you have to keep a player on your active roster for three games if you add him from another team's practice squad. And, you know, right now the Eagles have some guys that they're going to have to make some room for, starting with Cam Jurgens, uh, who is probably going to come off of the IR uh, this week, heading into Kansas City for the big Monday night game. Um, you know, you have maybe Quez Watkins. He's eligible to come back this week. Justin Evans, the safety, is eligible to come back. Uh, so they're going to have to find some uh, – you're going to have to do some roster maneuvering if they want to activate these guys. And, I, you know, I think you could put Goddard on IR. You could probably put Dean on IR. Um, maybe Grant Calcaterra who has the concussion issue, has the concussion history. You know, he did retire back in college uh, briefly uh, from football and decided to give it another go. I don't know where he is in his thinking, if he wants to continue his career or not. Um, but so that that's really – they need to find some, some room for those guys. Now you talk about maybe adding a linebacker, which I know they had Anthony Barr in, the former Minnesota Vikings uh, player who played with the Cowboys last year. They brought him in for a look. 
The Vikings ended up signing him. So you know how he's looking around to see, because right now that linebacker depth is really thin. Um, if you were to lose Nick Morrow or uh, Zach Cunningham, then what? what? What do you have? I mean, Dean's out. I mean, who? Who? where's your depth? They, they don't Christian have Ellis. <laughs> Yeah, Christian Ellis. And he was a good summer story. You know, he had a really nice camp, but, you know, he's been nothing more than a special teams guy, and he's been very good on special teams. But if you are going to have to count on him to be your starter, uh, that's a big drop. So, yeah, I would expect Howie to do, you know, to look at every resource available to him to see if he can't uh, somehow – find uh, someone to come in to help on some level, um, even if it's just depth. If you bring a guy in and put him on your practice squad and elevate him just in case. I see. So, um, you know, regarding that linebacker position, I have been, as I'm sure everyone is, like very, very impressed with Nick Morrow and uh, Zach Cunningham. And it's almost to the point where I'm thinking – Come postseason time, when all three are healthy, does Nakobe still have the green dot, and is he still the starter, or do you roll with Cunningham and Morrow because they've been playing great? No, I think you rotate all three probably, depending on how healthy Dean is and if Dean can come back. These list rank sprains are they can be tricky. You know, four to six weeks is kind of the you know the standard. Uh, time that you're going to miss, but you, you know, there've been incidences where it's been longer, you know, if it goes eight weeks, that's the end of the season. Are you going to bring him back? Is he going to be in shape to play? So no, I don't, I don't think he'll be the starter. You know, when he came back from his first stint on the IR, uh, he was a rotation guy with Morrow and Cunningham. Cunningham got the bulk of the snaps. Cunningham hardly comes off the field anymore. He's the guy that's wearing the green dot. He's the guy that's out there every play. Um, and then Morrow was kind of the third linebacker in the rotation behind Dean when he came back. But now if Dean were to come back, I think it's going to be Cunningham and Morrow. And then Dean will kind of be the 20 to 22 snap rotational linebacker in the, in the mix. Yeah, that's what I imagine as well. I just can't see how Dean would come back and start uh, and get the green dot because uh, they have been playing phenomenally. Um, but, you know, we were talking about tight end before and Goddard going on the IR. Um, you know, preseason, everyone gets excited about everything. Um, but I'm sure, uh, you know, I, I was excited that we got Albert. Um, I'm going to butcher this last name. Okwe Bunam. I call him Albert O. Um, yeah. But this guy's this guy's a freak, you know, runs a 4-4, big frame, 6-5. Should we expect really anything from him in, in this game against the Chiefs? Or do you think he'll be very limited to blocking and uh, not not running much routes or getting much route participation. Well, you mentioned blocking. That's really not Alberto's strength. I exactly. mean, yeah, yeah. So you know, if he's, I mean, listen, Jack Stoll can block, but he's not a big pass catcher. Alberto can't block, but he's a good pass catcher. So if you go twelve personnel with these guys, it's probably going to be Alberto that might be out going out for a pass, and you're leaving Stoll in to block. Um, but yeah, I don't. You know, I I think there'll be a role for him for sure. Um, I think he could draw a couple targets and see what he can do. I mean, uh, why not? The guy was a really good player in Denver, a uh, good pass catcher. The Eagles got him at the end of training camp. They gave up a sixth-round pick for him, uh, and they got, got a seventh back. back. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a former fourth-round pick that uh, the Broncos thought enough of to draft. So, yeah, I, I could see him having – 
it's not going to be a Travis Kelsey type role where they're going to throw him the ball 10 times, but I can see them throwing maybe three times to him in the game and, you know, seeing if he can produce with, with the limited opportunities that he gets. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm excited for him. I mean, I, I think he has real potential. Uh, hopefully he can, you know, stay injury free. Um, yeah. So I want to- I'm sorry. That's another position. I didn't mean to cut you off, Reed, but nope. that's another position that like linebacker, you all of a sudden you're thin because you lose Goddard. You don't know where Calcaterra is at the moment. So you're down to two tight ends with Stoll and Albert O. And then you have the kid on the practice squad, EJ Jenkins, who, you know, he, he was more of a receiver in college at, at three different colleges. He started at St. Francis of Pennsylvania, tiny little school. And then he went to South Carolina and ended up at Georgia Tech. But is he ready to be a tight end? Um, I don't know. He was listed as a receiver. So you're really shorthanded, like a linebacker, at tight end as well. Yeah. Yeah. Depth is definitely an issue. The injuries are piling up. Um, I wanted to also talk about not just the slot corner, but our outside corners. Um, I think it's very obvious to everyone. Bradbury and Slay are just, you know, not the same players they were last year. Um, I just I don't really have an explanation besides maybe they're get they're a year older. I was just curious as if you had any idea why maybe this drop in performance from them is happening. Yeah, you know, I actually think Slay has played pretty well considering the circumstances. I mean, he's this secondary has kind of been, you know, moving parts, you know, because Bradbury had to go to the slot a little bit to try to cover uh, for the absence of the injured guy. So you're working with Josh Job. Um, but he, I think he's been very good at communicating as best he can with the new guys. And, um, you know, we did see him tail off a little bit last year, and he admitted the season at 17 games is really long. Um, so I would like to see the Eagles try to scale back his workload, but you just can't right now. Um, not the way the secondary is playing. You need Slay out there. Uh, it's Bradbury that I'm concerned about. He has not played well, uh, I don't think, the last maybe three, four games. I mean, I don't know if going into the, to the slot messed him up, but I don't know what the case is with Bradbury. Um, they are, you're right, they're both on the other end of 30. Um, you know, and sometimes players just hit that wall at a certain point, you know, you, father time's undefeated for a reason. Um, and you just never know when, you know, uh, you're going to run into him. Uh, and, and maybe they are, I don't think they are. Uh, I think, you know, listen, you have a first year defensive coordinator and Sean Desai also, who's trying different things. Um, you know, so I think there's an adjustment there with the new DC, but, you know, age certainly to me is, is a factor. I don't know how big of a one, but uh, yeah, they need to, they need to get it together. It's encouraging that guys like Eli Ricks, who another guy that's played in the slot never did it before at the university of Alabama. You know, he's a kid that came in undrafted free agent, uh, but it's good guys like him and Sidney Brown and some others, Mario Goodrich have gotten this time, this baptism under fire because of the injuries. I mean, it only bodes well, for the future, you know, when Bradbury and Slayer, like, you know, we're walking with canes, you know, <laughs> you know, at least you have some guys now, Josh, Joe, guys that have been out there and battle tested in some big games. Yeah. It's great. And, um, you know, you mentioned decide new DC, new coordinator. Um, I was curious, are you more optimistic or pessimistic about the new OC and DC? 
I, and I, I guess, like, um, sorry, I'm going to add one more thing to that. And which are you more worried about between the two? Listen, I, I think that it's been an adjustment for both of them, but I think they're both really highly regarded uh, coordinators. And it wouldn't surprise me if they both become head coaches. I'm not saying after this year, but Sean Desai has really impressed me. I mean, he he has a good staff and he trusts his guys to go out there. He, you know, he's not afraid to call things because he's worried that, you know, a rookie isn't going to hold up. He's going to call his defense no matter who who's out there. Um, and that that's kind of impressive um, to me. And I think Desai is still figuring it out. He's a new defensive quarter. He's only been a DC one year in his career. And I think that was with the Bears. So I just think he's a really bright guy and really knows what his players can and can't do. And he has this education background. His parents were educators. So he's a really, really good teacher. And players will talk about that too, as he's very good at explaining things to them and, uh, letting them know what he expects, what their techniques, what their leverages are supposed to be. So, you know, I don't think he's going to be a head coach. And DCs have a hard time getting a head coaching gig as it is because it's more slanted toward offensive minds to become head coaches. Um, but, you know, I think he's got the capability in a couple years to become a head coach. And I, and Brian Johnson, you know, listen, there was a game where the Eagles ran the same play. Like they, they ran the ball like 17 straight times. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, well, that's easy because we're running it well. But, when you know, you can get bored of keeping calling the same play, the same running play. But Johnson stuck with it. Um, you know, this offense doesn't seem as prolific as it was last year. But you look at the stats and, you know, they're very good at putting points on the board and moving the ball. Third down conversions are, you know, off the charts. They convert like half of their third down conversions. So to me, Brian Johnson could be – I think he's a head coaching candidate too. Again. I don't think it's this year, get a little, you know, another year or two under his belt. But I think both these guys have the ability to become head coaches at some point in their careers. Well, wow, I wasn't expecting that about Brian Johnson. Um, I, I I do like the side very much. Um, I guess my biggest problem with Brian Johnson at the moment is I feel like the box score also doesn't tell the whole story here. Um, it's It still feels like we're not running the ball as much. And even when we are situationally, I don't love when we're calling it. Um, I, I think the most obvious game to point to is the commanders in the first half of that second matchup. You know, we ran the ball three times. And I know yeah. Nick Sirianni says, you know, a lot of them were called runs that were audible at the line, or at least they have the option to be audible at the line. Um, but I guess as a, as a bigger question here, what do you think is the biggest factor that's killing our run game at the moment. Like obviously Jurgens has been out. Uh, when he was in, we he was we were first in the NFL in success rate. Uh, we ran for 245 more yards with him in uh, in one less game. So obviously Jurgens is a big factor. Um, Jalen's knee. Who yeah. knows what's going on with that? They keep that very hush hush. Um, is that the reason why we just can't figure it out on the ground, or is it more Brian Johnson in the situations where he calls it and? his hesitance, I would, I would say, to run it early on in games and establish that early. Yeah, they do a lot of throwing. Um, but I think you answered your own question. I think it's Jalen Hurts' knee. I mean, Hurts is kind of that X factor in the backfield. Um, teams have to pay attention to him when he's a threat to run the ball. And as the bone bruise in his knee hasn't allowed him to really be as effective uh, as a runner. 
Um, but that opened up things. I mean, Miles Sanders talked about that all the time. And Miles Sanders really wanted to come back here and yeah. play with Jalen Hurts as kind of that, that X factor in the backfield and behind this offensive line. Now he goes to Carolina. Look, he's not nearly the same player uh, down there with a bad offensive line, a quarterback that doesn't open things up. So, yeah, it's Jalen Hurts' knee, and I think that's why Brian Johnson hasn't called as many running plays. You know, we'll see how this this two weeks, uh, this bye week has helped Hurts' knee heal. It's a bone bruise. There's no, you know, no knife you can get go under to correct it. You know, there's no surgery that'll fix it. It's just a bone bruise and you have to get treatment uh, and manage your way through it and hope you don't get hit on it again. So um, yeah, the Eagles running game has been really impotent the last couple of weeks and that's a problem. You know, they used to get the ball in the fourth quarter with eight, nine minutes left protecting a lead and they would just drain the life out of the clock because the running game was so good. It's not like that now. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with Hertz's knee. Maybe uh, Jurgens not being available has been a factor. Um, but they are winning games, and Johnson's doing what he has to to win the games based on what he has available. Now, I will say that in the red zone, he uh, needs to be a little bit more creative, in my opinion. I think they're used to running the football inside the 20. And, you know, going on 10-yard touchdown runs, stuff like that, teams are ready for that now. I think you need to be a little more creative and throw the ball on first down inside the 10 or 15-yard line. Um, loosen things up a little bit. Uh, I'd like to see a little more creativity from him in that regard. But, again, these eight games or nine games into his first year as ever as an offensive coordinator is going to be things he's going to learn, growing pains, just like we saw with Jalen Hurts through his career improving each year. The more you see, the more you do, the better you get at it. And I think Johnson will as well. It's great to hear the, you mentioning the red zone offense as well, because it makes me and Griff feel better about not going crazy. But we've talked about it many weeks, especially early on in the season. feels like we will get inside the 15-10, and that's when we'd start running the ball. And it'd be like a run play, a screen play to Goddard, and a run play, a QB draw or something like that. Yeah, And yeah. nothing would happen every single yeah, time. Absolutely so, amazing. I'm with you. It's great. It's great to hear that from uh, from somebody else as well. Um, but you know, uh, I feel like this knee injury is very similar to the shoulder injury last year in the fact that it's it, you know Jalen's never listed on the injury report. They they're keeping it very hush hush. You you never hear anyone talking about it. And I'm just curious as to why that is. Is there some sort of strategy that I'm missing here or? Like, you know, last year, no one knew about the short. I guess, you know, we knew about the shoulder, but, you know, the general media has no idea. Meanwhile, you're hearing everything about Joe Burrow's calf in the beginning of the year. And um, I'm just curious as to why why it feels like we always kind of sweep it under the rug here with Jalen. Well, he hasn't been on the injury report. So, you know, teams are obligated. If your guy isn't practicing, you have to list him as limited or a non-participant, and he's practiced. So there really isn't, in his opinion, or in his view, and the Eagles' view, there's no injury because he's practiced. He's out there every practice still doing everything that's asked of him to do. Otherwise, he would be on the injury report. Um, but, you know, my contention is it's making him a better quarterback because he isn't so quick to flee the pocket now. You know, he's actually doing some work from within the pocket. And I noticed this even before he hurt his knee. Like people in Philly are talking about you're seeing Jalen Hurts regress a little bit after the first few weeks when this offense didn't look the same. 
my contention was I think he's trying to learn how to play a little bit more effectively from the pocket, or even when he gets outside the pocket, he's not so quick to run. He's keeping his eyes downfield. We've seen him hit A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith, you know, on scramble plays. Uh, and I think he's very cognizant of wanting to play all 17 games. It's something he hasn't done in his first two years as a starter. And yeah, he's 25 years old. He should probably still be feeling invincible, but I think Jalen's a smart guy and he realizes that if he wants to play this game for another 10 years at minimum, he can't run all the time. I mean, guys come into the league that are younger and faster every single year, and they're going to figure out how to catch up with you. And for him to survive in this league, he needs to become more of a threat from the pocket or when he breaks the pocket and gets out on the perimeter. So I think this knee injury thing, whatever it is, the bone bruise that has not led to him being listed on any injury report is helping him develop as a better quarterback. Yeah, I mean, he's been incredible from the pocket, especially these last three or four games. He's His completion percentage is well over 70%. And, right. uh, you know, it's it's really impressive. And I think it really silenced the rest of, you know, the NFL media who said he's like a Lamar type who, who also Lamar, keep in mind, he's, he has the highest completion percentage in the NFL, but mm -hmm. uh, kind of like the same comparison there with like, Oh, Jalen can't really throw. He's just a runner. I think everyone sees now that he's really developed in the pocket as a pocket passer. Um, yeah. I also think uh, watching him go down at the end of that first half against the Cowboys do you worry about them keeping him out there at all um, in terms of longevity of the season? I mean, you got to trust what Sirianni and them are doing. Um, but just from someone who wants to watch him play later in the season into the playoffs, that has to be a factor in their reasoning. Um, and that's why I kind of am so surprised to not see him listed with any sort of injury because we go, we watch him week to week struggle to, you know, stand up on plays and that's natural, but you know, we're seeing it over and over again. Yeah, I listen, you know, Nick Sirianni will tell you we're not going to put our players in any jeopardy at any point. And, uh, you know, you got to hold him at his word, I would say, with that. Um, he's just um, doesn't feel like Hurts needs it, I guess. And Jalen doesn't either. I mean, he's like I said, he's practicing. Now, if you get hit on that bone bruise, it's going to cause a reaction like we saw at the end of the half there against Dallas. So, it, you know, that could be a situation that he just has to fight through. But, you know, midweek, he's fine and he's out there. You know, I'm at practice. They don't they have these walkthroughs that you can't watch. But, you know, one two days a week, we're allowed to watch and he's out there. He's running through the drills, the ball, you know, security drills. He's doing everything that we're allowed to watch anyway. Now, when we leave, I'm assuming it's the same thing that he's able to just continue practicing. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome guy. to hear. Yeah. What a tough guy. Yeah, he really is tough. So, you know, mentioning Nick Sirianni, um, I guess, <laughs> for lack of a better wording, how good is Nick Sirianni and what does he need to improve on? Because I'm just curious as to where you slot him in in the rank of NFL coaches. Um, where do I rank him? Well, I mean, listen, what is he, 31 and 12 in his career? Uh, two back-to-back 8-1 -back, and one seasons. Um there's only like 10 coaches that have done it before and they're pretty big name coaches. I, you know, I don't have the list in front of me, but you know, uh, Belichick's on there, you know, there's a lot of good coaches. Tony Dungy, I think did it, but, uh, you know, um, I think he's doing a pretty good job. I also think 
he's got a lot of talent. Like, you know, he, he inherited a team that had one of the best offensive lines in football. Um, that just was a couple years removed from the Super Bowl. So I think he's a good coach. I think I like the culture that he's instilled, how the guys all play for each other. Um, you know, is he a great coach? I, I don't know yet. I want to see some change and some consistency once change happens. Um, because to me, Howie Roseman's, this is Howie Roseman's team. I mean, he built this thing. Howie Roseman is the architect of a very, very talented team. And Nick has them all pulling from the same end of the rope. And, and that's important. You know, you could have talented guys, but they're not working on to be on the same page. And Nick makes sure they are. But I'm not ready to anoint him like, you know, the next George Hallis or whoever the Don Shula, I think, has the most wins in the NFL. Maybe I don't know, but I'm not ready to go there yet with him. But there's no question he knows what he's doing. I mean, he's won 30 plus games. He's been to a Super Bowl, um, but let's see him do it over, you know, the next three years when, you know, some of these linemen have moved on. Uh, some of his coaches have moved on. We've already seen him lose his coordinators. So they're back again, eight and one, even after two new hires at coordinators. So that's a good sign. But again, I want to see more before I go anywhere with him as far as like some all-time great coach goes. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I love Nick Sirianni as well. Um, I, I said some things a, a couple of weeks ago that didn't get the most love and reception, but I, I kind of was thinking the same thing as, as you. Like, obviously, it might even be more important than the football side, but as a head coach, you need to get these guys to play together as a team. Um, and I love that he does that, and he does that very well. But, you know, he's not calling the plays, right? I know he's game planning, but he's not calling the plays – is it unfair to say that he's almost more of like the glue guy, like the hype man, the guy that gets everyone riled up and less influential on the actual game planning and football side of things? I think he's involved with the game planning and there's no question. He loves these inspirational messages, you know, the Kobe Bryant speeches and, you know, the uh, Bobby Knight stuff that he talked about when Bobby Knight passed away. I mean, you know, he's very good at that stuff, the motivational part of things. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think he's involved in the, in the, uh, you know, in the game planning for sure. And whatever's called during a game certainly runs through him. Um, So Brian Johnson has an idea. He calls himself the CEO of a team. And, you know, I kind of like that approach, you know, not just being all in on the offense and not the defense, kind of like Doug Peterson was all in on the offense, which was fine, you know, and left Jim Schwartz run the defense, um, you know, but it's, it's, a, it's an approach that I, I like because that you are the CEO of the organization and, and you have to be hands-on in every ass, uh, facet of whatever's going on inside that building, offense, defense, special teams, the people in the building, personnel, everything. And, you know, to be able to do that, it's hard to do that if you're just focused on one side of the ball, like offense or defense. Yeah. That makes me feel better. Cause I don't know, for, for some reason, I, I just, I felt like, you know, with, with the OC and DC leaving, I mean, it makes sense. They're rookies, you know, the, the OC and DC, so it shouldn't look perfect right away, but it, it does look incredibly different. Um, and I, it just kind of made me think maybe Nick who does a great job at it is more of like the motivation you know, obviously, like you said, the big decisions go through him, but I, I feel like it's, which I guess makes sense with your CEO comparison, but it almost feels like 
the offense and the defense are not Nick Sirianni's. He just kind of oversees the whole thing, which, you know, that makes me feel better. That, that, that's the mentality and that's the implemented approach, I guess I should say. Um, but moving on to the big picture here, you know, Eagles had a bye. We got to watch some good football this weekend. Um, who do you think the biggest threat in the NFC is? Because we expected the Lion or the uh, Cowboys and the Niners to take par- care of business, which they did. And, uh, well, I guess the Niners maybe not as expected. The Jags were very hot. Um, and the Lions, you know, they beat the Chargers in that shootout. So who, who are you most scared of here? Um, well, I, I think I'm scared of the Eagles beating themselves. I mean, that's how they lost this year was in New York. They gave the ball up four times. I mean, if they're going to do that, they're not going to win. So, you know, they're their worst enemy, really. I mean, there are good teams, no question. The 49ers are a concern. You know, they go out and they get Chase Young at the trade deadline, really beef up that defensive line. It's going to be a great game here in Philly, December 3rd, uh, when the 49ers come to town. So they're a concern. The Cowboys, you know, the Eagles had to fight tooth and nail to win that home game against Dallas here in Philadelphia. Now you got a rematch on, I think, December 10th, right? So, you know, that's a concerning game. If you have to go to Dallas in the playoffs, that's a hard place to win. Uh, and then you mentioned the Lions. I mean, they're seven and two. They're right behind the Eagles for home field advantage. And they're a big threat for home field advantage. And if you have to go to Detroit to win a game to go to the Super Bowl, I've been to that stadium a couple times, Ford Field, and man, is it loud. Uh, it's one of the louder to me. I know Arrowhead gets a lot of, you know, a lot of acclaim to be one of the loudest. But to me, Ford Field is doesn't take a backseat to anything, even Seattle. I mean, it, it's an indoor stadium. Um players could be side by side. And I've talked to players after the game and the opener last year when the Eagles had to survive 38, 35. And they said they couldn't even, they were side by side standing next to each other and they couldn't hear each other talk or communicate. They had to yell. I mean, that's how loud it is. So that's a big threat. The Lions, Cowboys and 49ers to me are the three teams that you're going to have to, you know, contend with somewhere sometime in the playoffs to get to where you want to go. And did you have anyone in particular that you think is the most threatening or are they kind of all this? If we well, beat ourselves, we'll lose to any of them. I think the 49ers probably. I think they're well coached. I think their defense is terrific. Um, you know, they have the question at quarterback, Brock Purdy. Um, you know, is he really that good or is he just kind of managing the game? He's got great weapons around him. Ayuk and Debo Samuel and Christian McCaffrey. they got a really good offensive line. They're probably my number one uh, concern. Uh, of those three teams. I, I'm still not sure if the Lions had to come here for an NFC championship game to Philly, they're not going to win. I, I want to see the Lions play outside. Um, they're really quick on that turf. They're a quick team, and you put them indoors on that turf, and that, that's a whole other animal. So I'd probably put them third in that pecking order with the Cowboys second and the 49ers first. Great. Great points. Interesting. Um so I kind of wanted to transition here into some personal questions, if you're okay with that. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, me and Griff are aspiring uh, Eagles uh, covers, and uh, we were just curious as to how you got into sports journalism. Yeah, uh, you're taking me back quite a while there. <laughs> um, I mean, you guys, are, you guys are the next wave, man. I'm getting ready to, you know, ride into the sunset here in a couple of years, but. Um, yeah, I, I've, uh, gosh, I mean, I don't know how far back you want to go, but, um, 
you know, I got into it just with a local newspaper, uh, you know, answering phones, taking results, typing up a rap, um, and then just kind of went out and covered some high school stuff, got some bylines together. A friend of mine worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer as a photographer, and she told me about the possibility of them hiring stringers. So I sent, you know, my clips such as they were from this little local paper, and they liked what they saw, and kind of things went from there. Um, and you know, I like doing it. You know, I really enjoyed doing it. And I love doing high schools. I loved, I covered college. I've covered the pros. So, you know, my advice would be don't worry about what you're covering, whatever it is, just do it to your best ability uh, and always be flexible and look to kind of move when you can move into a better position, whatever you think's better. But let me tell you, I, I miss covering high schools. I thought my career would end with me going back to cover high schools not the pros because those kids are so appreciative and grateful for what you do for them and talk to them afterward and their, their families are appreciative. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's what you enjoy, you know, uh, but don't be afraid to do things that you think are below you because they're really not just do the best you can um, with whatever job it is you're doing. Wow. That's great. Um, did you have any significant highs or lows throughout your career that you think were, very influential to where you ended up? Um, I, you know, I, that's a good question. Uh, significant highs or lows. I mean, I've, I've covered a lot of cool things. Um, you know, I covered the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, back in the 90s. I covered West Virginia football and basketball in the mid-90s. Um, and then uh, probably the most significant thing was taking a job, going back to cover high schools to be, come back to my area where I grew up, you know, uh, in Pennsylvania, suburban Philadelphia. And, um, and I was fine with that. You know, uh, I covered the pirates, I covered the colleges and I'm like, yeah, high schools are cool with me. I don't care. So I came back and then, you know, I ended up getting put on, uh, like the second or third guy, the scene guy that goes to the playoff games and writes the fan piece. You talk to the fans and this and that, but you're at the game, you know, so it doesn't matter. So I got to go to the Super Bowl in 05 when the Eagles played, uh, the Patriots, uh, you know, as the, you know, a one guy, they called it the front page of the, of the front section, you know, just looking for unique stories, um, and, and writing about those, you know, I didn't have to go to practice or worry about, you know, the day-to-day -day grind of covering the team. I was out digging the dirt for unique stories beyond the sports field. So, um, you know, it, it's cool. You know, you shouldn't pigeonhole yourself to uh, like just like, oh, hey, I'm, I want to cover the Eagles and that's all I want to do. I mean, you, you got to branch out. You got to look for other avenues. You got to, you know, step into the news side. I covered news for a while, you know, uh, and, and it just helps make you a better reporter, which is key. I was told by an editor at the Inquirer when I was there. Don't worry about the writing, worry about the reporting. And if you're reporting the story well, the writing will take care of itself. So to become a good reporter, you have to put yourself out there in other avenues and other venues. It just can't be, I want to do Eagles, I want to do Phillies or Flyers, whatever, you know, uh, University of Virginia sports. You know, you have to, you have to be more well-rounded, in my opinion. That's the way it was when I was coming up. I don't know if it's still the same today, but I'm assuming it is that you want to be as well-rounded of a reporter as you can be. Um, and I've learned that at a lot of different places. I've been to several different places throughout my career. I didn't stay at one place. Um, you know, I put myself out there, switch jobs occasionally, uh, and you learn a little bit from each spot. So, you know, I've had a lot of highs, 
Lowe's, you know, getting, you know, you get laid off in a newspaper once before that was kind of a bummer, you know, you kind of reset and recalibrate and, you know, uh, it truly is who, you know, not what, you know, like I've made some really good friends in this business that helped me during, you know, some of those lows when I got laid off and helped keep me in this business instead of going out and teaching, like, you know, I would like to do. Um, so, you know, be prepared for that. You know, life, you guys know, I mean, you'll find out it's not just one linear direction, you know, it's, it's, it winds and it twists and it turns and it's about getting down when you're knocked up or knocked down, getting back up, uh, and not staying down and talking to people, getting to know people because you never know, they could help you and you could help them at some point. Wow. That's incredible. What a journey. I mean, I had, I knew you'd covered the uh, West Virginia and the pirates. I had no idea you dabbled in news as well. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to wrap things up, we had kind of a couple of fun questions here. Um, obviously besides the Eagles Super Bowl win in 2017, what in your opinion or personally is the greatest Eagles moment? Oh man, that's, that's like at the tippy top being there in Minnesota for that. Um, I got so many stories coming out of that game. Um, but maybe the second most was, um, hmm, you know, the, that NFC championship game in 05, I guess when they went to the Super Bowl in Jacksonville, when they beat the Atlanta Falcons, uh, with, and Mike Vick was the quarterback of the Falcons and, uh, I remember being on the field after that game and it was like 15 degrees and the ground was rock solid, but I went out there onto the field and I just soaked it all in the crowd. And you can see why players have, don't ever want to stop playing because it's such an adrenaline rush to feed off that, the energy of a crowd when it's like that. I mean, I felt it as just, you know, a bystander on the field with this crowd still there cheering and players going around and hugging and celebrating with their wives, their kids, like Hugh Douglas was on that team. And um, that was just a really, really cool moment. So I would say that NFC championship game in 05, I guess it would have been the 04 season when they beat the Falcons uh, at the link uh, would be probably the second best moment for me with the Eagles. That That's incredible. I couldn't imagine standing on that field. Yeah. That. Oh, man. It was, you know, it was something. And now it's a little tighter to get on the field. It's harder to get onto the field. So this was 04. It's just, you know, 20 years ago. Um, things have changed a little bit. But, um, you know, that was just – that was – just amazing to feel. It. And that's what dawned on me. It was like, you know, this is how, this is why athletes never want to retire because this is such a rush to be with your friend, these teammates of yours that you've, you know, gone through the highs and the lows of a season. And now this is your reward, the adulation of all these fans, you know, 65, 70,000 fans still there cheering and at, still very loud and it was freezing, but you didn't feel the cold. It was like, this is, this is an amazing uh, thing to witness. So I, I won't ever forget that. That, that is amazing. What an experience. Um, wow. I'm just trying to picture standing on that field in front of that yeah. game. Cause even when I, even when we go to the games and we win a regular season game against the Cowboys, it still just gives you the, most ridiculous rush just hearing a city yeah. united screaming for their team it's it's incredible yeah um oh i i lost my train of thought give me one second i had um 
Oh, yes. Um, so, you know, you mentioned that's why athletes love playing, you know, that rush of all those fans cheering. And I don't know how true these reports are, but, you know, I've seen several reports online about ex-Eagles, you know, wish they never left or, you know, teams that, or players that just loved playing for the Eagles. And you see it with guys like Shady who played other places, you know, they stick with Philly. And do you think that that's a, that is a real thing that people, once they play for the birds, they want to stay, they want to stay because the fans are so loud. They're so electric. They're so invested. Or is it still the, the stereotype that athletes hate playing in Philly because, to be fair, we are hard on our athletes. You know, we expect the most out of them. Um, so I'm I'm curious as to, you know, you, you've you had personal experiences with certain players and whatnot. Um, what, what do you gather from talking with them? Uh, yeah, I think fans are definitely a big part of it. And it's not for everybody. Some people can't take the, you know, the, the ridicule of the fans, you know, while they wait for the love to shine through. You know, they're just they don't they don't have the patience for it or whatever, the tolerance for it. But. Fans are a huge part of it, and I think as far as the Eagles go, I think Jeffrey Lurie probably has to get some credit here too. The organization that he runs, you know, he does really foster kind of a family environment. Um, you know, he takes care of his players. Um, he is loyal to Howie Roseman, let's say. Like you see some organizations that just recycle coaches and GMs and there's no stability. But, you know, how many times did you want Howie Roseman fired? over the last 10 years, you know, I mean, <laughs> how many first round picks was he going to mess up? Yeah, right, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, Lurie has showed that loyalty and that commitment to him. And, and then you look at players like Cox, Fletcher Cox and Brandon Graham and Jason Kelsey. It's like, you know, you guys can, we'll keep taking care of you as long as you're productive for us. And if not, you can either retire as Eagles or, or go on and try to play somewhere else. Like I know Brandon Graham does not want to play anywhere else. Um, it's always known. And I think Lurie probably gets a lot of credit, should get a lot of credit for what he has done with this organization, the stability that he has brought. Um, you know, these players don't have to look over their shoulder and worry about, you know, they're, they're being let go or uh, a coach being fired and someone else brought in. And then what's your role going to be with the new coach? I mean, I think Lurie brings stability and the players really appreciate that. And then the fans like, like you said, I mean, the fans are just terrific. If you're going well, there's probably no other place in the, in the, in the country that you'd rather play for is in front of this fan base. Yeah. And you know, one thing I think uh, I'm not sure of this because obviously I absorb mostly strictly Eagles content, but I also feel like he invests so much money in the social media sides of things too. He gives, he, there's so much content that the Philadelphia Eagles as an organization puts out for us fans to, you know, engage in like every week, they'll have like a 20 minute video doc, like documenting the, the, the pre-week. And then they'll have the mic'd up every week. They have the recaps, um, even just the hype videos on Instagram. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think Jeffrey Laurie definitely deserves more credit, uh, more than I have even considered uh, before. I didn't yeah. really think about how much he really has an impact on, I mean, obviously the owner uh, as in the organization, organization as a whole, but um, yeah. And he's going to keep it in the family too. When Julian Lurie steps in, when Jeffrey decides that he's had enough or was ready to, you know, move on, he's the whole operation is going to be handed to his son, Julian, who's 27 years old, I think. And he's kind of becoming ingrained in every aspect of the organization, ticket sales, promotion, social media, 
whatever it takes to run a successful organization, he's getting experience in that. So when the time comes, he'll be well-versed in everything that goes into creating a successful organization. Did you have an estimate on a timeline for uh, Larry's departure or? Um... Boy, I don't. He still looks great for 70. What is, I don't know, 71. He still looks good. He, you know, he comes to practice every day. He's a nice guy, says hello. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I mean, you know, five years maybe. I, I don't know. I, it would just be a complete guess. Yeah. But uh, if you're an Eagles fan, and I know Jeffrey Lurie can be given a hard time with some of his decisions and how much he might or might not be involved with the decisions on the personnel side. I think Eagles fans are lucky to have him and they should hope that he sticks around for as long as he's healthy enough and still wants to do it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's it's comforting to hear that upon his departure, you know, we're at least getting someone who you would assume would have the same uh, mentality as uh, as his dad. So, yes, um, that's great. Um, so last question to wrap things up. I guess it's a two parter here. Um, you know, we talk about this all the time, um, but you have a better perspective than we do. So I'm very curious as to see your top three Eagles quarterbacks and top three Eagles receivers of all time. <laughs> of all time. Well, because there's I'll a lot of, lot of choices at those two positions. So. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll probably go receiver first. And maybe I'm I mean, I, when I was a kid. And it shows you how old I am. I loved Harold Carmichael. He was like my favorite player. And he's still involved with the organization. He's such a nice guy. Um, it's wild that I, I've gotten to know him because he was one of my heroes growing up. I loved – he was this big 6'8 target, 6'7, one of a kind back then. Uh, he's in the Hall of Fame now, thankfully. So, you know, I would I would probably say – and I didn't – Pete Pihos, I think, was he a wide receiver? Tommy McDonald was the one. I didn't uh, didn't see him play, but I, you know, there have been some great ones. Mike Quick was fantastic. Um, Still and, also involved with the Eagles as well. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's a good guy too. Um, AJ Brown is certainly making a case to be in this mix. Um, so yeah, I would I would probably go right there. Those three. I mean, Deshaun Jackson was terrific. I mean, uh, but I would probably go Harold Carmichael, um, and maybe that's a little bit of a biased pick. But he was terrific, guys. I mean, if you ever saw this guy play, I mean, he was he was really fun to watch because you just didn't see a guy that size making those plays. I mean, Jaworski would just throw it up to him and he would make the catch and it was fun to watch and he could run, he could catch, he caught everything. So I'll go Carmichael. I'll go, uh, I'll go, and I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to go AJ Brown number two. I mean, I just think if they can keep him under contract for the next five to eight years, I think AJ Brown will be in the hall of fame. And he's such a unique player. The way, just the size he has. I mean, you look at him, he looks like an edge rusher, um, playing receiver, so physical. Um, I'll, I'm going to go AJ Brown, I, and it's still a work in progress. But right now, I'll go two with him, and then probably Mike Quick, number three. I mean, Mike Quick held the record for most receiving yards in a in a season for decades until AJ Brown came along last year and had four uh, one thousand four hundred ninety six receiving yards to break Quick's record. And I was talking about it with Mike in the in the elevator once going up to the press box uh, as Brown was on the brink of doing it. I think he needed the one game at the end of the year. And I said, what do you think of your record 
probably going down today. And he looked, he goes, well, AJ has one extra game to do it. I did it in 16 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. So, yeah, but, he, you know, AJ's going to rewrite that again this year. Yep. He's already at 1,005 yards with eight games to play. I mean, he he's going to end up, if he stays healthy, uh, 1,700 or 1,800 yards, I think. And that record's going to stand for a while. So, yeah, I'm going AJ two, Mike Quick three. Yeah, you know, me and Griff, before we were, we were talking about, uh, we were curious as to where you would rank AJ, because obviously you've seen uh, more great receivers than us. Um, and we hadn't seen Mike Quick or Carmichael. So uh, we, we yeah. were just talking about it beforehand where you'd put him. But I, I like him at two. Because, you know, in our lifetime, we had T.O. when we were, you know, yeah. three, two, three years old for, what, 15 games he played for us. <laughs> so that's all we had with T.O. And then Jackson and Macklin were great for us. Alshon yes. was great. But we've yeah. just, in our lifetimes, have never had a guy that you can just chuck the ball up to him. And you are you have confidence that he's going to bring it down every time. Yeah. It's and Deshaun, Deshaun Jackson would be right on the outside of those three because the way he's able to track the ball deep, uh, you know, he's like a center fielder playing baseball. I mean, he's just really good at tracking the ball, and he's so fast. And he made some, so many electric plays, all those touchdowns he's had of 50-plus yards. Um, you know, it's a shame when he came back here that it didn't work out. But he certainly belongs in the top five in my book. I don't, I don't think I'll ever forget that first play on Monday Night Football against was- the Redskins. And he just – Vic unloads a 70-yard cannon. Yeah. Oh man, that was incredible. Yeah. yeah. My quarterbacks, if you want to go there. Uh the best, I listen, I would probably say McNabb. I know he never won anything. Um I loved Randall. I loved watching Randall Cunningham play. It's a shame he didn't have a better coach than Buddy Ryan. He just said, go out and make a play for us. Uh and Randall would most times he would do it. Um I, but he, I don't think he's top three. Um, Foles won a Super Bowl, had a great 27 touchdown, two interception season. I was there when he threw seven touchdown passes against Oakland that day. The Raiders. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oakland. Um, yeah. The Oakland Raiders. Yeah. What a dump that stadium was, too. <laughs> it's the baseball field. Yeah, I know. It was awful. Yeah, yeah. Kelly did his press conference after the game in the weight room of the athletics. <laughs> they just, the Eagles put a screen up in front of a mirror where in front of a weight rack. <laughs> They're all jammed into this tiny weight room. Like, what, what, what is this? You know, what kind of knockoff operation is this? Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I digress. Um, McNabb, I'd probably put number one. Um, just consistency through – a decade uh, of football. And it's a shame the way his career started with the booing uh, after the Eagles took him, but I would put him one. Um, geez, Jalen Hurts to me is probably going to be number one before he's done. If he continues the way he is and can stay healthy. Uh, but I, I would probably go Foles number two, because he won a Super Bowl. Moment, yeah. I mean, he's had, Good. It's not just that he won four games at the end of the 2017 season. He had good year before that. Um, so, yeah, those two. Um, Ron Jaworski took him to a Super Bowl. Um, probably a lot of people forget about that or I don't know. He's a, he's a 
legend in the community now, Ron Jaworski. He stayed in town. Always on MVCS. Uh, yeah, good guy. guy. Really good guy. Um, yeah, there haven't been a lot of good, <laughs> good quarterbacks <laughs> in Eagles history. You know, Ty Detmer and, uh, you know, Mike Vick. I mean, I, listen, yeah, Mike, Vick. Mike Vick really went through hell to get back to his career. And he was really a good guy. You know, I talked to him a few times. He was the only quarterback that you could just go up to at his locker in the locker room and just have a conversation with. The other quarterbacks aren't like that. They talk on the podium inside the auditorium and they're not as approachable, the starters, uh, to go up and just start carrying on a conversation with at their locker. Um, Mike Vick, you could do that with. Um, and he certainly delivered some electric moments in Eagles history. 38-31 in the Meadowlands. Yeah, th- right. I mean, just some really great memories, stuff that pops up on Twitter every now and then, the old clip, and it's like, yeah, I got to watch this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But, uh, right. So, yeah, I gosh, that third one's a, a tough one. Um, maybe maybe Cunningham. I mean, and again, I you can see in the back I got a, po- a picture of Randall Cunningham in the Fog Bowl. Um, I don't know if you can see that real good, but it's signed by Randall and he played the Fog Bowl. Uh, That's awesome. That's incredible. incredible. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you can see it, but uh, yeah, yeah, we can see that. Yeah, I mean, just one of my favorite quarterbacks to watch. And then they punt, punts the ball ninety six <laughs> yards. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll go, I'll go Randall three. Um, McNabb, Foles, and and Randall, and maybe that's a biased pick like Harold Carmichael for me because I loved watching Carmichael and I I loved watching Randall. That was so, great. Yeah. Uh, I love the rankings. It's it's nice to you know hear from people who've actually seen seen these legends play because when we're talking, if someone brings up, you know, Harold Carmichael, it'll be like, well, you're just saying that because yeah. you looked up the Eagles legends. You know, we never got to see that happen. So yeah. I, I love the perspective. Um, I was a young boy watching him play, man, and impressionable as could be. And I was like, man, I whenever, you know, that's why I became an Eagles fan when I was young was Harold Carmichael. I mean, that was the first guy I remember. And it was so weird getting to know him like, I, I still would be like, man, I can't believe that's Harold Carmichael, the guy, you know, when I was 10 years old, like <laughs> 12 years old, yeah. I love this guy. That, and, that's an insane story. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah meeting, that's awesome. Meeting your childhood. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. That would be like me somehow becoming friends with Westbrook because Brian Westbrook was my was my guy. That's what really got me. <laughs> yeah. Really well, got me. You, know, you never know, man. Like, <laughs> like I said, life has a lot of twists and turns, and maybe there's one – Right up, right up ahead there for you, and you'll meet uh, Brian Westbrook. Hopefully, you do. That would be incredible. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Ed, and thank you everybody for tuning into another episode of Broad Street LinkedIn. Make sure you tune in later this week for our preview Super Bowl rematch in Arrowhead, prime time Monday Night Football. But as always, go Birds. Mm-hmm.